welcome to the Destiny Podcast. We hope this message blesses you. We're going to um, continue on uh, the old Romans path. And uh, I guess I'm just going to quickly recap, but like we kind of went through Romans and we kind of highlighted that one of the main things to understand about Romans is as Paul's introducing this whole like all-encapsulating journey of like, okay, what's the gospel? We're made to see what's all the different aspects about sin, about faith, about who we are, our identity, even who God is um, uh, comes into it as well. Like there's this whole breadth of information, but he's speaking to Jewish people who would have been caught up in their own Jewish practices. And in the same way that when he talks to pagans, they're dealing with different things, you know? Um, and so the Roman church probably had a lot less issues with wild sexual immorality because in a synagogue, you wouldn't have an orgy. <laughs> but in Corinth, you would probably have an orgy. Not in, you know, the Christian church, eventually. Um, <laughs> but, you know, in their pagan experiences, that might be something they would do unto certain gods. And so when they came to church, they were like, so we don't have orgies here? And it's like, no, 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 that's not Christian. We don't do orgies. That's pagan. And so, like, you know, that's something they had to learn. Whereas, you know, in Roman uh, church, they probably didn't have to learn those sort of things because they came from a much more Jewish kind of vantage and, and view. And so we're dealing with that group of people with their own unique kind of issues. Um, but at times I wonder if that's much more like what we have today in the church, the same sort of issues, rather than having orgies. Um depending on the church you go to. Um, <laughs> so we kind of went through um, exploring what is it to be um, in God's people and how that was deconstructed a little. It wasn't about who your dad was or your lineage. It was very much what was your faith. Um, we deconstructed faith a bit. We deconstructed sin a bit. And then we deconstructed even like our identity, like sinner, righteousness. Those kind of identities weren't, um, based on what you do, but actually more a position of belief, a position of I'm believing in Jesus rather than I'm living contrary to believing in Jesus, this concept of being under Adam or being under Jesus. And so from there, I know we didn't read the full text from Romans 6, um, largely for brevity more than anything else, but I encourage you, go once we're done with this, go and spend a weekend reading right through Romans and kind of have a have a soak in it and just and soak it up and try and get it um, deep in you and you might find you know well oh, I disagree with this passage or that passage of how Phil taught it or anything that's fine um, I'm not leaving anything out to try and form my opinion or anything like that um, at least certainly not intentionally um, but I want to jump into Romans seven because Romans seven so we've we've kind of covered this concept of you don't have a sinful nature as a Christian you know I mean that is what. Romans 5 and 6 are all about, especially Romans 6, you're dead, you're dead, you're dead, you're dead. That concept of a sinful nature, this ish, this person that is at odds with God and this flesh that's filthy and rotten and at odds with God, it's over there. It's gone. It's dead. It's buried. Um, and yet many, many Christians really, really cling to the concept of I have a sinful nature. I'm at war with myself. I'm at war with my flesh. That kind of idea. Um, and a lot of that comes from this passage in Romans 7. But what I would just say is anyone that reads Romans 7 coming to the conclusion, I have a sinful nature, has failed to read it in context. You know, because, I mean, 
Romans 6 and 5, right before it, we're really hammering home. You don't have this. Your old self is dead. Your old self is gone. Your old self is buried. You're a new righteous creation. You're a new person uh, alive in the newness of Jesus. So for him to then to write a chapter and go, oh, by the way, I'm struggling with a sinful nature. I'm deeply sinful. is kind of majorly like missing the point. You know, you'd have to have a schizophrenic break to write Romans 6 saying you don't have one and Romans 7 saying you do. Um, and so I think it's important that we look at Romans 7 in its context so we understand that. And so Romans 7 starts and he says, really important, first verse, okay? And, and you have to remember, like, these letters weren't written in chapters and verses. That's something that was more modern to make it easier for us to flick to and find a page. Um, so this is just one big text that he's flowing from. And so he comes from Romans 6, which is you're dead, you're dead, you're dead. You're alive in Christ, you're alive in Christ, you're alive in Christ. So like this whole sinful thing is dead. And then he, he builds on that and he starts a new topic. You can see it's clearly a new topic, but he frames it right from the beginning. He says, or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law. Okay, so he's saying, look, guys, you know the law, right? You're, the, you, you're Jewish, right? You know the law. You grew up with the law. You understand the law. You know its importance. You know what it says. So he says, or do you not know, brothers, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? So he's, he's suddenly come out of nowhere from talking about sin um, and talking about sinful nature and talking about a righteous nature. He starts talking about the law. And so it might be safe to say he's transitioning into talking about the law. Really important to identify that as we start, because if you don't look at that, you make Romans 7, 12 through 21 all about a sinful nature when he's covered our nature. He's covered who we are. He's now talking about the law. And so he says, the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive but if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. So this is just a really simple analogy. And it's simple because it's still the case today, right? We understand that analogy. He's saying, look, there's a woman and she's married to her husband. And till death do us part. That's one of the vows, right? We, we marry a person and we say, until we die, we're married. We're committing to one another. And so it's saying, if she went off and like just had um, a relationship with another man, she'd be an adulteress. That's what we would call her, because she's breaking the law. But if her husband died, and then she got in a new relationship, we wouldn't call her an adulteress. That's okay, because death separates that, that bond and that legal obligation to another person, right? Um, you can call into question and say, well, maybe she poisoned her husband or something, but, <laughs> um, but that's how it works, right? And it works the same today, right? If you marry someone, you can't then go off and have a relationship with someone else without becoming, quote-unquote, an adulteress or an adulterer. Um, but if, you're, if your partner dies, um, or if you get a, a divorce, or, you know, if, if it's legally you're um, separated from that person, you're free to remarry. And so he's just using this example, which is actually really lucky that he's used an example that is carried through to today. We still hold to these sort of values in our uh, Western culture, and so we understand what he's saying here. And so he says, likewise, my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which has held us captive, so that we serve in a new way the spirit and not the old way, the written code. So what he's saying here is he says, you, 
were married to the law. There, you were married to the law. You were uh, in an arranged marriage, per se, right? But when you died in Christ and you rose up new again, you were no longer married to the law. You were free to marry another. And he's saying, in this, we separate. We, we were married to the law, but when we died, we were no longer legally obliged to that. And we got to marry again. And we married into grace. It's a completely new covenant. And this is why it's legal, is there was a death and a resurrection. So death is how covenants cease in this context, certainly in Jewish eyes and how they would have seen this thing, is you commit to something and only death can break that commitment. But death did happen. This is what the whole passage before was about, wasn't it? You died, you died, you died, you died. And so we died to that, and we're free from that obligation. We're free from that covenant. We're free from you have to commit the law, do the law. We're now in this new covenant. We have remarried into grace, into walking with the Spirit. Um, and what we see again and again in Paul's writings is he, he distinguishes these two throughout all of his writings. He says you can walk in the flesh or walk in the Spirit. But when he says he's walking in the flesh, he's talking about living under the law going back to the old covenant, going back to the old way. We talked about yesterday how you can resurrect your dead body and choose to try and do it yourself. You know, what should I do? Should I do this? Should I do that? That's right. That's wrong. And, and fixating on the law, you can live in the flesh on your own. You're wrong. Like Jesus is still with you, but you're neglecting that and living in your own strength. Or you can start walking in the spirit. And, and I kind of I kind of give an analogy, uh, not an analogy, but uh, the, the saying I find really helpful is, am I living as me or we? And I think when as, as soon as I answer me, it's, you know, it's when we ask things like, what should I do right now? How can I do that? What's the right thing for me to do? You know, it's, it's all me, 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 me. And as soon as we do that, we're, we're walking in the flesh again. We're, we're rejecting walking in the spirit, rejecting walking with Jesus. And instead we walk in our own strength our own striving, our own ability to try and get what's right. And that's when we step back in the flesh. And so the flesh isn't necessarily about our physical body, right? It's important we understand that. That, that word, Greek word sarx is used in multiple contexts. And so it's important we don't like just throw out everything that Paul said in the last two chapters and assume when he says walking in the flesh that he's saying your physical body is evil and bad. He's saying living on your own apart from God is a terrible, terrible bad decision. Yeah, And so it's, it's important we see that. But he goes on to explain some of the law. And he says, look, what should we say then? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. So he's saying the law isn't sinful. The law isn't bad. When it says, like, don't kill your brother, you know, don't, uh, don't sleep with someone else's wife. Those aren't bad commandments. He's like, they actually taught us what was right and what was wrong. It showed us what was sin. Um, he says, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law said, not said, you shall not covet. But sin seized an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. So what's interesting is he says, sin isn't bad, but unfortunately the fruit of sin is it inflames badness in me. Uh, the fruit of uh, the law. Um, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. And so he's saying, actually, when, it's, when we step onto the law of what's right, what's wrong, what's right, what's wrong, that's when sin comes to life. Because what happens is when you have the law and the question is what is right and what is wrong, you step away from walking with Jesus and you step into me identifying what's right and what's wrong and me trying to do what's right and trying to avoid what's wrong. And he says, when you do that, sin comes alive because you're doing it in your own strength. 
and you're going to fail. Like, you know, we, we, we don't need uh, any amazing stories or testimonies. We all have our own for that one, right? Trying to do what's right and trying to avoid what's wrong and screwing up royally. And so he says, so the law is holy and the commandment is good, holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what was good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment that... Uh, and, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. And so he's saying, actually, the law came not to do good in, a, in the sense of help us do the right thing. The, the goodness of the law is it exposed our sin and it exposed our issues and it exposed our ability not to do it on our own. Um, and this is the power of law. And this is often why Jesus steps up the law a lot. You know, so he sits down with people and he says, right, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery, right? And he's saying that to a group of a thousand people, let's say. Now, in that group, right, there's probably some people that have committed adultery and they're thinking, oh, crap, right? But most of them probably thinking, well, I haven't committed adultery. Check me out. I'm doing pretty well, right? And then what does he do? He says, but he's like, I'm saying if you've even looked at another woman, you're guilty of that sin. And then everyone in the crowd is like, ah, crap, right? Because immediately you're like, oh, I'm, and so the, the, the thing with the law is that at a certain point we think, oh, I can do that. But then as the law steps up its game and we actually look a bit deeper, we go, oh man, I really can't do this. And so what it does is it exposes our inability to do life in the flesh on our own, the me life instead of the we life. So he says, um, for we know that the law is spiritual but I am of the flesh sold under sin. So he's now going to start contrasting what it is to walk in the faith, uh, walk in spirit, but and what it is to walk in the flesh. And he's, he's saying, look, I, uh, you've got to remember, Paul is the guy that knew the law better than anyone. Yeah, like way better than anyone. And he says, for I don't do what I want. Or sorry, let me start again. Sorry, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is my flesh. For I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. What he's saying here is he's saying, look, in me, on my own, my own effort, my own uh, striving, digging up that old nature and trying to do it on my own, there's nothing good in that. It can't come to the conclusion. And anytime that, that old nature knew what was right, but it couldn't do it. And it knows what's wrong and it ends up doing it even though it tries to avoid it. And so he's setting up this whole argument of like, look, if you're seeing this in your life, that's what you're doing. You're digging up the old nature. You're trying to do this on your own strength. And so he says, for a I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. And so actually he disassociates with it, right? He's disassociating with that whole thing. And he's saying, look, that's not really truly who I am. I'm not that person anymore. That's not who I am. But I'm allowing sin to dwell in that person. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. And this is his problem. See, the thing is, we often look at this and say, oh, he delights in the law and his inner being. That's a good thing. He's actually saying, no, it's not a good thing. I grew up my whole life going, the law is it. The law is it. Doing right. That's what it's all about. Not doing wrong. That's what it's all about. And in me, I, I know that's what I'm supposed to do. That's what God told me to do. That's what my t- parents told me to do. That's what my rabbis told me to do. He says, but actually, that's my issue. As he says, I keep going. That's right. I'll try and do it. And, and so what I do is I step back into the old nature of trying to do it myself rather than doing it with God. And so he says, um, 
for I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of death? So he's saying, look, who's going to deliver me from this situation? And he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. And so he's saying, it's okay in your mind to know what's right and wrong. He says, but as soon as you try and do that in your own strength, what you're doing is you're serving sin. Because you trying to do things in your own strength is what inflames sin. And so, and you know, we jump into that chapter of Romans 8, and he says, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So he's saying, look, being in the spirit, walking in the spirit, that's what set you free from this whole issue that is the issue of mankind. There's no one in the world that isn't aware of, even if you don't have the law of Moses or the law that God gave, there's laws all over the place and everyone knows the more I fixate on trying not to do something, I end up doing it. The more I fixate on doing the right thing, I end up screwing up somehow. You know, it's, you stick a red button in the middle of the room and point a big arrow at it saying do not press what do you want to do right all you can think is like i want to press that button right and if i put another sign that's even bigger and says seriously don't press it you're like i want to press it even more now right it's the it's the analogies have you ever seen these experiments to do with kids where they sit down with kids and they're in a room on their own and there's a table in front of them and they say um, oh, let's have some sweets. And so they get like a little candy or something and they put it on the table, just one piece. And they're like, oh, I forgot something. I'm just going to leave the room. Don't touch that. And if you don't touch it, you can have the whole bag when I get back. And then they leave the room, right? And then they just watch through the two-way mirror. And the kids are like, I know I'm not supposed to touch this. There's a whole bag of sweets if I don't eat this. But man, that looks good. and I really want to eat it. And, uh, you know, and, and they're just inflamed by the law. By this, this is right and this is wrong. And what do they end up doing? There's never a kid that survives that test. Like maybe they just don't show the one goody two-shoe kid that can actually manage it. But like, and they, and what's funny is it's a slippery slope, right? So they don't actually just pick it up and eat it. Maybe one or two kids do. But they like, they get close and they, they try and sniff it. And then maybe they, they get close and they pick it up and maybe they lick it a little bit and they're like, oh, that tastes good. And they put it back down and they're like, I didn't eat it. Like I didn't break the law, right? And this is Jesus's thing, right? Well, I didn't commit adultery. I just looked at it. You know, it's, and eventually what happens though, before long, it's in my belly, right? I ate the sweet. And you can see the second they do it, they're like, oh crap. Like I, I, I knew I wasn't supposed to do that and I, I didn't want to do it, but I did it anyway. And then as soon as they eat it, right, they come back through and they walk through the door and they're like, oh no, you ate the sweet. And they're like, and they have the most amazing excuses, right? It, it fell off the table and it, it landed in my mouth. You know, it's like, just like, I mean, like these are kids, right? But like, how often do we do that, right? With our excuses of why we fell into the flesh. But I want to pause here from walking through Romans and I want to just um, give you a bit more of a well-rounded view of this because I really want you to understand that the law is fundamentally important that we understand the law and its role for Christians because a lot of Christians, we don't know how to engage with the law still. We really don't. Like most Christians out there are still teaching the law. If you look at um, a Christian school, Bible school, maybe um, a church, uh, maybe Sunday school, the first things we teach, some of the first fundamentals we teach are like the Ten Commandments. Right? I mean, like, we still think, like, this is it. This is, the, this is the important elements of Christianity. Like, I've been in multiple churches, and most of them have done a 10-week series on the Ten Commandments. 
I mean, I don't know many churches that haven't done something like that at some point. Right? We still go, this is this is what it's all about. And so one of the things I think is really helpful um, when we look at something like the law and think, right, because remember we were talking about this, the Bible being this progressive journey and, and Israel's journey being progressive. So it's important when we look in the past and we go, right, this was given by God. So how does it fit? Does it still fit? Is it still relevant to today? In what way is it still relevant today? You know, we're asking these questions. One of the main things we need to do is we look at the life of Jesus and those that were teaching Jesus, right? So the New Testament is the place to go. And we look at the apostles teaching and go, what were they saying about the law? Like, because their job was to help form these churches, you know, Ephesus, uh, Colossae, like all these places, Corinth, uh, you know, all these places, they're writing to them going, hey, this is what the the grace message looks like this is what gospel looks like this is what the new covenant looks like and they were explaining it so as they're explaining to these churches what is it to be a a christian it's a really good idea to look through that and say did they say anything about the law like what were they saying about the law because if we do that we can then maybe go back to the old testament and see if it needs to be reframed through the lens of jesus like we were talking about yesterday and so i'm just going to read you a few scriptures um this is going to be a, when I say a few, probably about 40 or so before I stop. Um, so there's a lot about the law. It's not that they brushed over this topic. Um, so I'm going to read them out. I wouldn't bother trying and write them down or anything. If you want, I can give you a list of them um, later. But I just want to give you these. And I hate pulling scriptures out of context. And I want you to know that these are all within a context. There's scriptures that mention the law that I could have used that would be a bit of a push because I'd have probably taken it out of context. But I want you to go back and look at these later. Or, you know, I just, I can't give you, you know, eight verses surrounding each verse if there's like 40 of them, you know. So um, get the list from me later and, and by all means check it out yourself. But we're just going to walk through uh, the New Testament. So in Acts 15.10, it says the law is an unbearable yoke. Romans 3.20 says the law reveals sin, but it cannot fix sin. Romans 4.14 says, if the law worked, faith would be irrelevant. Romans 4.15 says, the law brings wrath upon those that follow it. Romans 5.20 says, the purpose of the law was to increase sin. Romans 6.14, Christians are not under the law. Romans 7.1 through 6, we just read that, that Christians have been delivered from the law. They died to being in relationship with the law. And Romans 7.7 through 12, we just read that as well. The law is good, perfect, and holy, but it can't make you good, perfect, or holy. Romans 7.10, which we read as well, the law which promises life only brings death. Romans 7.13, the law makes you sinful beyond measure. Romans 8.2-3, the law is weak. Are you getting a message? You're starting to pick up a theme here, right? Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15.56, the strength of sin is the law. 2 Corinthians 3.7, the law is a ministry of death. 2 Corinthians 3.9, the law is a ministry of condemnation. 2 Corinthians 3.10 says the law has no glory at all in comparison with the new covenant. 2 Corinthians 3.11, the law is fading away. And you could maybe put like an asterisk inside that one in your head and be like, well, fading away. It sounds like, you know, kind of still here. It's not entirely gone. It's fading away. Um, 2 Corinthians 3.14-15, this one is going to blow your mind. Like, honestly, like if you stop and think about this, this should scare you as a Christian. 2 Corinthians 3, 14 through 15. Anywhere the law is preached, it produces a mind-hardening and heart-hardening veil to Jesus. Anywhere the law is preached, it stops you in your heart and in your mind connecting with Jesus. That's terrifying, right? Because what do we do in our church? What do we do in our kids' Christian schools or, you know, Bible school or whatever. We preach the law all the time. And what is it? It produces a mind-hardening and heart-hardening veil to Jesus. 
Galatians 2.16 says the law justifies no one. Galatians 2.19, Christians are dead to the law. Galatians 2.21, the law frustrates grace. Galatians 3.1, to go back to the law after embracing faith is, quote-unquote, stupid. Um, Galatians 3.10, the law curses all who practice it. Galatians 3.11-12, the law has nothing to do with faith. Galatians 3.13, the law was a curse that Christ has redeemed us from. Galatians 3, 16 and 19 as well say the law functioned in God's purpose as a temporary covenant from Moses till John the Baptist. Galatians 3, 21, if the law worked, God would have used it to save us. That's a really good point, right? Like if the law is so special, then why did Jesus even need to come? If it worked, he could have just used that. Galatians 3, 23, the law was our prison. Galatians 4, 24, the law makes you a slave Ephesians 2.15, the Christ has abolished the law, which was a wall of hostility. Philippians uh, 3.4-8, we talked about it a little bit yesterday. Paul considered everything the law gained him as skybalon, which is that Greek word for poop. Colossians 2.14, the law was nailed to the cross. 1 Timothy 1.8 says the law is only good if it's used in the right context. And so you go, well, what was the context? And so the next few verses say that. It says, the law was made for the unrighteous, not the righteous. And we've covered that as well. Who are we? We're the righteous. We've been made righteous. So the law is not our portion. It's not for us. Hebrews seven eighteen through 19, the law is weak, useless, and makes nothing perfect. If you're ever wondering why Hebrews is an anonymous book, <laughs> try writing that to the, the Jews in Jerusalem. The law is weak, useless, and makes nothing perfect. I mean, like, you don't want to put a return to sender on that uh, letter. Um, Hebrews 8, 7 through 8, God found fault with the law and created a better covenant and acted on better promises. If you stop and think about that, I, I've read that so many times in my life and each time I read it and I'm like, wait, God found fault with it? He gave it. Like, does he do things not perfectly? It's kind of one to think about. It's obsolete, growing old and ready to vanish. Hebrews eight thirteen. That sounds a little bit like, remember 2 Corinthians uh, three eleven. the law is fading away. So again, maybe put that aside and we'll talk about it in a second. Um, Hebrews 10, 1 says, the law is only a shadow of the good things to come and never can make someone perfect. So I'll pause there because I don't want to, you know, belabor the point beyond the facts that I've already belabored it. Um, but can you see, as, as we're reading through the New Testament, they were quite, they brought up the law many times and it wasn't that they, like, boosted it up and was like, hey guys, make sure you're still doing this. Make sure like we still keep to the Mosaic Covenant. We see Paul again and again and again, right? He says, like he goes into these situations, he's saying, what? You've accepted Jesus and now you're going back to getting circumcised? I hope you cut your whole penis off. I mean, he literally says that to someone. I mean, that's pretty full on, right? He said, I hope anyone teaching you need circumcised cuts their own penis off. Like, wow, it's quite harsh. Um, But that's how passionately he felt about going back to the law, right? The whole book of Hebrews is about being in the new covenant but thinking about going back to the old and the whole book is is all about how the new covenant is incompatible with the old covenant it's completely different and we're not to go back to the old we're to live in the new and a lot of this comes because timo mentioned it just towards the end there there's a lot of confusion as to where the new covenant ends or the new covenant begins and the old covenant ends and so we go well maybe like at the cross or maybe when jesus like the, the holy spirit fell Maybe when Jesus was resurrected, maybe, you know, and, and there's lots of ways we can go, well, maybe the, the new covenant started then. Maybe it was when he breathed on them before he even went to the cross. You know, like, it's all these different things happening. And what I, what I see 
is while the new covenant start is a little ambiguous, but you could probably put it around the time Jesus died and resurrected, right? And rose into heaven. So it's not like 50-day period, right? Or at least the Holy Spirit fell. Like that kind of window, right? The new covenant started. The problem is the old covenant didn't end. The Jews didn't stop being Jews. They didn't stop going to the temple. They didn't stop doing sacrifices. They didn't stop going to synagogue every week. You know, the old covenant was still very much in place and actually that's why there's books like hebrews the book of hebrews is written to jews uh, to christians in jerusalem that are going well we were jews and then we converted to christianity and we're doing our christian thing but they're still going down to the synagogue every week they're still going along to the temple and doing sacrifices and are we supposed to do that because it's kind of making us nervous seeing that every week and we're doing our thing but we grew up our whole life knowing that we were supposed to do this so what are we supposed to do with that tension? And actually the book of Hebrews is saying, don't, don't, don't go back. Please don't go back. A lot of, in fact, our two main passages for how you can lose your salvation are both in Hebrews. And actually it's not about you can lose your salvation. It's about if you step away from the new covenant, Christianity, and go back to the old covenant, the old covenant's about to end. And when it does, you're going to be left with nothing. That's what it's saying. It's not saying if you step out of being a believer, you'll like, you know, somehow not be a believer. Uh, that's a big stretch if you read that in context um, and so the book of Hebrews is saying something's going on here the old covenant might be still around but something's about to change and obviously that's really clear when we see AD 70 AD 67 through to 70 really Jerusalem gets destroyed completely and utterly obliviated like I mean the place is leveled and the temple is completely destroyed um, about at least Two million, maybe as much as sort of 2.8 million Jews died. There was only about 100,000 Jews left out of a 3 million population. I mean, it was bad. Like, it was really bad. The Jews almost became extinct. I mean, it was brutal. And what's interesting is Jesus prophesied it. He said, bit for bit, word for word, this is going to happen. And a lot of our end times theology comes from Jesus in Luke 21 and Matthew 24 saying, you know, oh, the end of the age will come and this is going to be the signs of the time. And we forget to say that end of the age does not mean the end of the world. It means the end of the old covenant. Because what does he say? It starts with him saying, oh, you think that temple is so amazing, right? Because they're pointing at the temple going, look at the temple, isn't it stunning? And it was pretty damn amazing. Like it was really amazing. Um, People have like estimated based on like the the description of what it was to build the temple, the, the second building of it, that it's possible that one square foot, so that area of the temple, each area in today's money would be worth one billion, which I don't know how that works at all, but that's the figures I heard. So even if that's way off, this place was really nice, okay? It was expensive, it was like luxurious. Um, and so, they're boasting about it. They're like, look at our temple. How amazing is it? Isn't it amazing? It's a sign of how good God is. And Jesus says, oh, I'm going to tear that down and rebuild it in three days. And they're like, what? What will be the sign of the end of the age and the sign of your coming? And we think, oh, that's going to be Jesus coming back in the second coming and the whole world ending. And it's like, no, he's talking about when he's going to tear down the temple and rebuild it. He's talking about how the old covenant is going to end and his new covenant is going to begin. That's what he's talking about. The end of the age is the end of the world as the Jews know it, the end of the covenant. And she goes on to explain that. He says, look, this is going to happen in a generation. Like, it's amazing to me. We see him say that. This will happen to your generation. And yet somehow we're still waiting for it 2,000 years later. That takes a lot of uh, scriptural 
uh, like work to make that count. Because what's interesting is what is a generation to um, biblical text, a generation is about 40 years or so. And so it happened in 70 AD. It was prophesied by Jesus sometime between sort of 30, 33 AD. Sounds like it's pretty accurate. And what was he saying? He was saying, look, this is, this is what's going to happen. You'll be surrounded. Um, so there'll be, um, I'm trying to think of all the different prophecies, so many. Um, he says there'll be earthquakes and famine. Well, the biggest famine in the known world at that time, it's talked about in our Bible again and again and again. Paul travels the world um, going to all the churches. And he says, I'm coming around the churches getting an offering because the epicenter of the famine in the known world at that time was in Jerusalem. It was horrific. People were starving to death. And so Paul's traveling to death. That happened right before 718. There was this massive famine and people were starving. Earthquakes. If you look at, um, you know, it's not new that we record earthquakes. You know, back in the past, maybe they didn't record like, oh, that was 0.3 on the Richter scale, 40 miles out to sea. They were going, oh, that city's not there anymore. Right? I mean, that's how they would record. So when they recorded earthquakes, it was like, there's actually some serious stuff going on, right? It didn't move some books on our bookcase. It, like, you know, killed a bunch of people and leveled some houses. And actually, if you look at um, the records of people in that time, there was an unprecedented increase in earthquakes. There was huge amounts of earthquakes. And so Jesus had warned, look, there's going to be earthquakes. There's going to be famines. He says, um, you're going to... Um, Notice when nations rise up against nations and there's going to be war and rumors of war. And you hear that, right? And you're like, that is like the crappiest prophecy ever. War and rumors of war. Ooh, right? I mean, like, it's like saying uh, there's going to be rain in Manchester. And it's like, yeah, I know. Like, you didn't need to tell me that. That's obvious. Or there's going to be an earthquake in California. And it's like, yeah, there's like 12 every day. Like, so you're like, there's going to be war and rumors of war? Like, what a terrible prophecy, right? There's never a time where that isn't relevant. And actually what's interesting is there really is. You see, we've, we've got, and when we look through historical records of mankind, all that we've documented and things, there's lots of documentation of who went to war with who and what happened. And actually there's only one time in human history where there was known peace throughout the known world. Um, now, depending on what you classify as peace, I mean, the Roman Empire wasn't exactly peaceful. They went and killed everyone that wasn't going to just agree with them. So it wasn't like, you know, yay, peace. But it was peace. There was no nations going to war with other nations. And actually, Pax Romana, which is what it was called, this Roman peace, lasted about 120 years. So actually, by the time um, Jesus' prophecy comes around, people haven't known war for decades. Perhaps as long as 100 years, there's been no wars. And so when he says there's going to be wars and rumors of wars, that's actually quite significant. Because that doesn't happen in the Roman Empire. And actually, it did start happening right before 70 AD. There started to be skirmishes and wars breaking out amongst the nations. He says, all the nations and the kingdoms will turn against you, the Jews. What's interesting is people started to slaughter the Jews in their thousands before 70 AD. In fact, there's records of certain towns would get together and discuss in private. And then in one night, certain towns got up in the night and killed every Jewish man, woman, and child in one night. They just went right through the town and just slaughtered them all. In one of the towns, 15,000 Jews died in one night. Um, and so people really started to turn and hate the Jews in an unprecedented way. They were never particularly popular, but really didn't like them. Um, and so all this stuff is going on. There's lots and lots of answer to this prophecy. And one of the prophecies is, you'll know this, that this is soon, and it's coming soon, when the eagles or the vultures surround Jerusalem. That's the same word in the uh, Greek. So some of your Bible translations might say the vultures surround because that makes a bit more sense in the sense of people being around eating dead carcasses and stuff. But it's like, well, 
you can't say it's going to be soon when there's vultures eating all the dead carcasses. It's like, it'll be over when that happens, right? But actually what's interesting is the same word, eagles and vultures. Well, what's on a Roman shield? An eagle. The whole shield is this big eagle. It was the emblem of the empire. It was on their hats. It was on their shields. Um, and so what's interesting is in around 67 AD, the Caesar sent General Titus to Jerusalem and says, I want you to go and destroy Jerusalem and kill every Jew. And so he goes there. And like I said, everyone was hating the Jews at this point in this period. And part of it was because they were starting to rebel. And Jesus did warn them, hey, if you rebel, things are going to go really badly for you. A lot of that we interpret as uh, um, passages about hell and, and condemnation. He's just saying, look, the fires of Gehenna, which is really uh, about judgment and punishment for rebelling. He says, if you keep on your violent trajectory with Rome, you're going to face a very violent uprising and destruction. Um, well, he was right. They rebelled against Rome again and again and again. And eventually Caesar was like, sack it. Let's just kill them all. It's easier. And so General Titus shows up. He surrounds Jerusalem so no one can get out. He blockades Jerusalem. So you have the eagles surrounding Jerusalem. Another prophecy fulfilled. And so again and again and again, these prophecies are fulfilled. And what happened is they couldn't get out. They couldn't escape from Jerusalem. So they stayed in Jerusalem. And what's funny about it, or not, depending on how dark your humor is, um, what's funny about it is they would have been fine for three, four, maybe as long as five years. They had huge reservoirs of food, of um, water, of all sorts of stuff. They could have locked themselves in the city and been completely fine. But there was a man called John Levi, and he rose up and says, I'm the Messiah. And there was, to be fair, to put it in context, there was Messiahs, multiple Messiahs every single year. Even before Jesus, after Jesus, there was Messiahs always rising up. I'm the Messiah. I'm going to save Israel. I'm going to rise us up and rebel against Rome, and we'll, we'll have a, a, a kingdom and a nation again. But this guy was pretty legit. He had lots of miracles. He had, like, you know, real charisma. He had a massive following. Tens and tens of thousands of people believed in him. And so he rose up and he says, don't worry, we're going to be set free and we're going to overthrow the Roman government and the Roman rule. He says, but, he says, the problem is we don't have any faith in God. Look at all our food and our water and stuff like that. We're storing up stuff to make us feel safe and we're not relying on God. What I want you to do is burn everything. And so what they did is they burned all their food and destroyed all their water supply. Because they wanted to be like, God, we're only going to rely on you, right? And this is the analogy of... Um, you know, people giving their very last penny to the, the prosperity preacher to prove I'm not, I'm not trusting in my finances. I'm going to fully trust my finances in God. Sometimes he works like that. Absolutely. But it can be really manipulative and destructive. And in this case, John Levi didn't work very well. Right. And so John Levi was in the temple and he sat in the temple um, on the throne. And uh, and actually it went really, really badly um, to the point where they ended up killing him. Uh, because he screwed them over. Now, John Levi had a name, which is really interesting. Because he screwed them over so much, they called him the abomination of desolation. Have you heard that phrase before? Abomination of desolation is prophesied in Daniel, where he talks about the quote-unquote end of the world. And what's interesting is in Daniel's text, a lot of people put his, do you remember his, his year plan? And they put those, the, his weeks. And so he goes, this week and then this week, and it'll be 32 weeks of this and this amount of weeks. And if you do it, it all adds up to Jesus, doesn't it? And then they go, oh, and there's like seven more weeks or whatever. I can't remember. Three and a half weeks. And, then, and so they, they go, oh, there's that many weeks. And so that obviously, and then they change the formula completely to mean like, you know, exactly 2017, the world's going to end. Um, but actually, if you keep the same formula that led to Jesus, then the same amount leads to his death, and then the same amount again 
leads to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And so the end of the world happens in 70 AD, according to Daniel's text. And one of the things Daniel said, he says, you'll know it's the end of the world when the abomination of desolation sits in the temple. Really interesting stuff. Jesus also prophesies, again, in his Matthew 24, he says the abomination of desolation will sit in the temple. And so th- this isn't like, like, you can make it about the end times if you want. You can have some sort of double fulfilled prophecy. There's no such thing in the Bible, but, you know, you can make it that if you want. Um, but what you have to acknowledge is there's no way you can get around it. In fact, the Jewish historian who didn't believe in Jesus, he was a Jewish historian, uh, Josephus, probably our best uh, record keeper from the Jews in this period, he said, we can tell that Jesus's prophecy was accurate because every part he prophesied came true and not one Christian died in the destruction of Jerusalem. Over 2.8 million Jews died. And not one Christian died because they saw all these signs and they fled. And actually, you know, you look at some of the signs and it says, when this is happening, flee your homes. You better hope you don't have young children. You better hope you're not pregnant. And the Christians did. They fled their home. And what's interesting is as things progressed, things got worse and worse and worse in Jerusalem. There's no food. They're, they're blockaded in. The, anyone that tried to escape was crucified. They had as much as two to 3,000 crucifixions every day um, as people tried to escape Jerusalem. And they would just have crosses all along the roads leading out to Jerusalem and anyone that was caught would be stuck by the but it got to the point where there was so many people they were killing and not enough crosses so they actually had to hang someone on the cross to cover and they like alright that's enough kill them get them down get someone else up like it was just they were killing people like crazy and then what they do is they throw the dead bodies back into Jerusalem and plague and, and, and disease was going rampant and what's worse is people were eating those dead bodies because they were hungry but then there's not enough food so they started to eat all their animals before long they're out of animals they then started to eat their children before long, they were out of their children. They started to eat their babies. And the stories of this time where par- parents would make this brutal decision where I'm going to kill my own baby so I can eat it. I'm so hungry. And I just have to do this to live. And they would kill their baby. And as they started to cook the baby, people would smell the cooked food, break in and steal the baby and leave. And so they, they actually killed their own child and didn't even get to eat it. I mean, this is the sort of stuff that's happening. Crazy, crazy, crazy stuff. When, when Jesus says this is going to be the worst thing ever, when he says he's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth, he's not messing around, right? He's really not messing around. This is bad. But the reason I'm telling you all this is because we fail to see that the New Testament was written before 70 AD. The only, pass, uh, the only ch- book that we can contest that, there's a, a lot of debate about it, was Revelation was either written in the 60s, which would be before 70 AD, and a lot of Revelation points to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem and all of that in extraordinary detail, um, which is why I would say there's a good argument for it being written before 70 AD. Um, but other people would say it was written more in the 80s or 90s, quite late. And so uh, it's quite complex. And a lot of it comes from the fact that John was exiled to Patmos twice. And so it's hard to say which one was when he was in Patmos. You know, it could be when he was there first or when he was there second. Um, but either way, you take that out of the equation. Hebrews, writing to the Jews, uh, these Christian Jews in Jerusalem saying, look, I know this looks tempting that your still old life is still there and all your friends, all your family, everything like that. You could go back and you could have that again. But it's coming a time where that's getting destroyed. And if you're in that system, if you've left Christianity, like, you're going to be destroyed with it. That's what those passages are about. When uh, Paul says it's, uh, it's uh, fading uh, away, when, Paul sa- when the author of Hebrews says uh, it's, it's coming to an end, that's what he's talking about. 70 AD in a few years after Hebrews was written and a few years after the Second Corinthians was written. Not, you know, you can hold on to the law today. It's gone. Like 70 AD is in our past, not the future. And so the reason I share that is it's important that we know that while 
the New Testament, it was like, well, when did that start? There's a period of a few you know, weeks we could probably pick. Old Testament, we know when it ended. In fact, do you know this? So, you remember in the Old Testament, the priests would wear this thing called an ephod? Do you remember this? And they had two stones on the ephod. They had 12 stones representing all the tribes. And they had two stones called the umum and the thummim, right? Nice, helpful names to say. And basically, one stone represented no. Excuse me. And one stone represented yes. And so what they do is quite funny, right? Because nowadays we pray to God and he just talks to us and that's that. In the old days, that wasn't how God dealt with us. The priest would go before God and say, God, should we go to war? And the yes stone would vibrate or the no stone would vibrate. So they almost played like 20 questions. I don't know if you have that in Germany, where you, you have to ask a question that is only answerable by yes or no. And so they go, should we go to war? Yes or no? And so it'd be no. And it's like, oh, uh, well, should we go to war later? Yes. Oh, okay. Uh, well, should we go to war in a year? Yes. Oh, okay. We'll wait a year before we go to, you know, that's how they dealt. And one of the main reasons they were given this is not just to talk to God in this situation, but when the high priest went before um, God in the Holy of Holies, right? So they do all these sacrifices and they go in and they tied their bells to themselves in case they fell dead in front of the Holy of Holies and had to be dragged out. They would go before the Holy of Holies and say, God, have our sacrifices for Israel been acceptable? Do you forgive Israel of its sin? And either the yes or the no would ring. And this is something they recorded, right? Because like, you know, pretty important stuff. And actually, since the building of the temple, after they came out of Babylon and rebuilt the temple and reinstituted sacrifices, all the way to Jesus's death, there was a yes. Every year, God forgave them of their sin. From Jesus's death to 70 AD, every year they got a no. That's going to be quite chilling and quite scary, actually, as Jews. Um, but it's really profound because to that point, they were like, no, 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 no. And actually at that point, it ceases, right? Because they can't do sacrifice anymore. The temple's gone and that whole system has fallen apart. And actually in the destruction of the temple, which is the destruction of all the records of the Jews. So no one could prove I'm a Levite, I'm a Benjamite, I'm a this because their records were destroyed in the temple. In fact, when Titus finally destroyed Jerusalem about three years later in 70 AD, it said he comes in and he, he requested that the entire temple was destroyed. And he says, I want you to till the soil so not one stone is left upon another. And that's Josephus' words. Does that sound familiar? Because that's what Jesus says, doesn't he? He says, not one stone will remain on the other. So I'm saying this not to ruin your end times theology. If it does that, that's fine. I don't care. Um, but I'm saying it to just give you a framework of like, Jesus told us this was going to happen. Jesus told us the end of the old covenant was happening. And he gave us a very detailed prophecy. And scholars admit like this is the most accurate prophecy in the entire Bible. A lot of prophecies are like, well, you know, like it's hard to prove that or that's kind of vague and it's kind of open. He gave about 20 different things that were all going to happen and they all happened. And it's like, it's like, whoa, this is really a prophetic word here. Um, and so I know that was a lot just to cover two verses that might give ambiguity as, as to whether the law is okay. But I really wanted to tackle that and say, no, the law isn't okay. It's not our friend. It's not part of the Christian walk. It really is um, passed away. It is faded away. It has ended. It has come to an end. And so when we look at all that stuff, it then leads us to go, well, hold on, though. Like, if the law isn't good, then what's it all about? Like, what is the deal with the law? And so I think it's healthy to go back into the Old Covenant and look at the law, look at how it was given, look at what, what relationship we had with it. And so if you look at the Old Covenant, you look at how it came about, it doesn't come about on God's behalf. It comes about on the people's behalf. The people are offered by God, hey, I want to have a relationship with you. I want you to be a royal priesthood. I want to have you as a holy nation. I want to have a relationship with you. That prophecy in, in 2 Peter, 
when he says you're a royal priesthood, you're, you're going to have a relationship with God and you'll be his people and he'll be your God. He's quoting from the Old Testament where God said that to the people then. And do you know what they said? Moses, we've seen you talk to God. It's bloody terrifying. The ground shakes, there's earthquakes, there's lightning, there's thunder, there's big dark clouds, there's fire. Uh, maybe you just go ask him what we should do and tell us and then we'll do it. And what does he do? He comes back down a mountain with a whole bunch of rules. They got what they asked for. And so again, I think it's actually more of a sign of God saying, I'll work with you guys where you're at. You need some rules. You need some regulations. Sure, we'll do that for a while. I don't want it. I'd much rather have a relationship here, but okay, let's do it your way. And so we have to understand that that's how God finds fault with the law. Not because he gave a bad law, but because he goes, this was never my plan. I have a better covenant enacted on better promises. Um, But actually the law given on Mount Sinai wasn't the first place the law exists anyway. You see, the law exists right at the beginning when we look at the garden. When you see um, there's a tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that's where we introduce the law. Because that's all the law is, right? It's knowing what's right and knowing what's wrong. And what's interesting to me is the law is right there in the garden. And what does God say? I really, really, really hope they never engage with this. I want them to eat from the tree of life. I don't want them to eat from the lodge of good and evil. I don't want them to know what's right and wrong. It, thinking about it's kind of mental, especially if you lead people to be like, I don't want the people I lead to know what's right and wrong. It's like, uh, that's terrifying. But actually, if you put it in the context of, well, I don't want them to do that. I want them to have a relationship with God. It suddenly becomes a lot less terrifying to say, oh, you know, if walking with God is all they're going to do, are we worried they're going to sin? Like, is that likely to happen? Is God likely to go, oh, watch this, we'll make them sin? Of course not, right? And so the whole thing is a type and a shadow of Jesus saying, of, of God saying, I don't want you to live based on what's right, what's wrong, what's right, what's wrong. Constantly asking that question, constantly trying to do that yourself. What I want is for you to eat from the tree of life. I want you to have a relationship with me. I want you to walk with me. And so if you jump into the New Testament, we can even see Jesus talks about this as well. Jesus only talks about the law a few times and many people throw this one scripture out as like, well, stop. This whole thing is completely kaput. You're talking rubbish. Because at one point, Jesus says, look, I've not come to fulfill, uh, to, to, to do away with the law. I've come to fulfill it. Not one jot or tittle, so like the X or the dot or above the I. Not, not, none of that will pass away. And anyone that causes someone to lower the the standard of the law will be severely judged he says and so people quote that and go well phil you're obviously talking crap and i'm like well i'm not just reading scriptures actually and so for me i'm like no well let's take a breath and stop and look at what does that verse actually mean then because we we have one verse that contradicts the whole scripture i think like or at least a good chunk of scripture we should look at that verse a bit more closely and actually if you look at it he doesn't say he wants you to do the law he doesn't say the law is what it's all about. He says he came to fulfill the law. And the law still has a purpose. That's what he's saying. And so, you know, if he came to fulfill the law, imagine you had a, a mortgage that you were paying, right? So you've got a £200,000 house and you're paying £2,000 every month paying it off. Can you imagine you're paying every month and you're paying every month and you're slowly paying off your mortgage. One day someone knocks on your door and it's like, oh, I just visited the bank and I paid off your mortgage. Here's the contract to say it's all fulfilled. You own the house. Congratulations, right? And you'd be like, what the hell? Did I win the lottery? Like, I mean, this is the best thing ever. So you get your contract and you put that somewhere safe, right? Because that is like, you own the house. It's your deeds to the house. 
So when the next month the bank calls and says, hey, you cancelled your standing order. Where's your £2,000? You go, uh, it got paid off. You wouldn't go, all right, fair enough, I'll send £2,000 over, right? You wouldn't keep paying because it's been fulfilled. You wouldn't keep um, living under that standard if someone had fulfilled it, if someone had completed it, if someone had accomplished it for you. And what you do is you go back and you find that certificate and go, things paid in full, you're not getting another penny from me. And Jesus is saying, look, I have come to fulfill the law. I'm not doing away with it, I'm just fulfilling it for you. So you don't have to keep trying to fulfill it. You don't have to keep trying to live up to that standard. Um, Timo quoted earlier, and, and I mentioned as well in, in um, Colossians, you know, the, the, um, the obligation and the requirements of the law were nailed to the cross. Jesus fulfilled it once and for all. Um, and so it's not to say that the law disappears or that the law doesn't have a purpose in fact if we look at first corinthians first uh, timothy remember it said it has a context it's per- good in the right context it says it's for the unrighteous not the righteous well there are people that choose not to live in righteousness right so we've all been given that gift of righteousness but there's many people that choose to do it on their own to live on their own and when you live on your own and you live apart from god you're choosing to live in unrighteousness well that's what the law is for The law is there for them to go, I'm going to do it myself. I'm going to figure out what's right and what's wrong and try and do it. And the purpose is, and this is why Jesus says, don't reduce the purpose of the law or the the requirements of the law. Because can you imagine, let's just think of the Ten Commandments right now, okay? Um, If I said, if you live the rest of your life never breaking the Ten Commandments, you can go to heaven. Otherwise, you're going to hell. Would you feel confident? Bearing in mind things like, don't lie is in there, Right? Or, you know, I mean, like, there's some, uh, I'm, I'm honest, I'm like, no way, I would immediately be straight off to hell. Like, I mean, I don't think I'd last a day without doing something wrong, you know, like, don't covet, you know, I mean, I'd look at someone else's car and go, I wish I had a car like that, you know, I mean, I, I'd be really in big trouble quickly, right? Now, if I said, well, maybe if you go one day without doing it, would you be like, well, maybe, but I don't know, like, I really, I wouldn't feel confident. I'm sure I'd screw up somewhere along the lines. But if I said, okay, well, never mind that, why, how about if we only do, do not murder, Okay, don't kill. How do you feel now? You're like, that oh, should be all right. Maybe I have to drive a bit safer. Uh, <laughs> you know, maybe like not run with scissors, you know, or whatever. But I think I could maybe do that. And so this is the point Jesus is saying. He's saying the law has a purpose to, to show people they can't do it themselves. If you start reducing the standard of the law, then what happens is they start to go, well, I can do this myself. And so he's saying, don't, don't reduce the standard of the law. Just recognize who it's for and who's not. I fulfilled it for you, so don't. Don't sit there trying to do it every single second of every day. But at the same time, if people come to you and say, I'm going to do this all by myself, I don't need Jesus, you go, all right, well, here's what he said is the standard. And so it's important that we understand it does have a context. It does have a standard um, to which we adhere. Um, I'm going to stop there and we'll take a quick break and then um, I'm going to do one more thing. Thank you for listening Um, to the Destiny podcast. For further information, check out www.idestiny.com. Dot org. Dot